Now the story starts to begin to move away from the Levite to the people. All the Israelites, chapter 20, verse 1, from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is the most further city, northern city of the town, country. And Beersheba is the most southern part of the country. Left their homes and assembled together before Yahweh at Mizpah. The leaders of all the people from all the tribes of Israel took up their places in the assembly of God's people, which numbered 400,000 sword-wielding foot soldiers. The Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone to Mizpah, and the Israelites said, explain how this wicked thing happened. Now notice how every tribe showed up for this, except for the Benjamites. But they didn't have this many people show up for when they were supposed to obey God and attack everybody. I mean, during Joshua they did, but not since Joshua. I mean, every single judge that we've read about since Joshua says this tribe didn't show up and that tribe didn't show up. And now they're all showing up. Explain what happened. The Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, spoke up. I and my concubines stopped in Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah attacked me at night and surrounded the house where I was staying. They wanted to kill me. Instead, they abused my concubine so badly that she died. I grabbed a hold of my concubine and carved her up and sent pieces throughout the territory occupied by Israel because they committed such an unthinkable atrocity. And Israel, all of you Israelites, make your decision here. Now, what's not right in this story? He left out the fact that he sent her. He completely left out the fact that he threw her out. Exactly. He left it out completely. And then he talks about cutting her up nonchalantly. And then he says, okay, you rule. You make your decisions. He knows he's wrong. Now, here's the question. Who killed her? We don't know. The narrator specifically leaves out. The only time his death is ever mentioned is when he says that. But we know already we can't trust anything about this guy. Did they rape her to death or did he kill her cutting her up? The point is it doesn't matter. They're both. I mean, technically one could say he did because he's the one that threw her out to begin with. But the point is that there's no difference between Sodom and Gomorrah, the Gibeonites, and the Levite. That's the point the narrator is making. There's no difference. They all killed her. They all killed her. Can you imagine your church doing this? It's one thing for us to think these are a bunch of Israelites a long time ago, and of course they're evil and stuff, but you need to understand something. The point that the narrator is making with this story is your church is doing this. Now, wait a minute. Let me rephrase that. The point is not that your church is doing this. It's not looking, this one's not looking in the mirror. I hope this isn't looking back at you. Um, most biblical stories are, but hopefully not this one. The point is that this is the equivalent of your church doing this. This is the equivalent of your pastors and your church all doing this, and you're all looking at each other thinking, what's the big deal? That, you don't think of some ancient people in the ancient world who are all barbaric. Think the chosen people of God who received the law of God. And they know what righteousness is more than anybody else does. They should. Who've actually had the pillar. The pillar of fire is still in Israel. This is the point the narrator is trying to make to you. This is the equivalent of the Christians and the church today doing this stuff. And thinking it's no big deal. This is how evil Israel has become. And remember, God made it very clear to them. If you act like the Canaanites, then I will bring the same plagues of Egypt upon you. Is it possible for the people of the church to act like this? Yes. 
because it's possible for the Israelites, the chosen people of God, to act like this. And that's probably where the warning is. If you, you should be horrified and grossed out. And that's a good thing. But don't assume because you feel that now that we can't ever end up that way. And I don't mean like maybe we, but our culture, which means we're responsible for making sure that the next generations don't end up that way. I mean, we've already seen how far the church has already compromised itself just in the last couple of generations. It's very possible. This is a warning. This, this is probably the biggest mistake that Christians in America have made is that, oh, we'll never become this. We can never end up like this. I hate it when people say that. Because then you seriously misunderstood what being a sinner means. All of Israel rose up in unison and said, Now one of us will go home. Not one of us will go home. Not one of us will return to his house. Now this is what we will do to Gibeah. So they're ready to punish Gibeah. Now, the first thought that I have in my mind is, not one person in the crowd is thinking, Okay, yes, Gibeah is jacked up and evil for what this do, but you cut her up, you sick, twisted freak. <laughs> That's right. Like, nobody is shocked by that. He says it nonchalantly. They just kind of, ex- okay, they killed her. And they go on, but they don't deal with this. Now they're ready to punish Gibeah. Is there any evidence? It's all based on his word. Are there more than two witnesses? Levitical law says there must be evidence. Levitical law says there must be at least two witnesses of renowned standing in the community. Levitical law says there must be a trial. And they're not doing any of that. This is a lynch mob. They're acting no different than the Gibeonites. And they're ready to go out. So they say not one person will go home until we do this to Gibeah. We will attack the city as the lot dictates. We will take ten of every group of a hundred men and of all the tribes of Israel and a hundred of every group of a thousand men and a thousand of every group of ten thousand men. Basically what they're saying is everybody's going to show up. To get supplies for the army. And when they arrive at Gibeah, Benjamin, they will punish, we will, they will punish them for the atrocity which they committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gather together the city as allies. Now they're finally coming together as a nation. To attack their own people. No trial, no evidence. I mean, we know Gibeah is guilty, but they don't know that. And they're ready to go to civil war based on no evidence and ally themselves as unity when they couldn't even do it to obey God. This is the irony of all this stuff. They couldn't do this in obedience to God. And now they're doing it with no evidence to punish somebody in vengeance. Now, does Gibeah deserve to be punished? Heck yeah. But remember, they don't know that this is actually true. The tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin, saying, how could such a wicked thing take place? Oh, it's kind of been happening over the last couple hundred years. Hand them over for the good and for nothings and give us so that we can execute them and purge Israel of the wickedness. But the Benjamites refused to listen. So they say, hey, Benjamin, do the right thing and hand over Gibeah. And Benjamin refuses. So what do you learn here? Benjamin believes that loyalty to your fellow Ethnic people group is more important than God's law. Blood is thicker than God's law. Blood is thicker than God's law. They're not willing to allow Gibeah to be punished. The Benjamites came from the cities and assembled at Gibeah to make war against the Israelites. That day the Benjamites mustered from their cities 26,000 sword-wielding soldiers beside 
700 well-trained soldiers from Gibeah. Among his army were 700 specifically trained left-handed soldiers. Each one could sling a stone and hit even the smallest target. The men of Israel, not counting Benjamin, had mustered 400,000 sword-wielding soldiers. Everyone had experienced warrior. Benjamin is severely outnumbered. There's no way they're going to survive this conflict. The Israelites, verse 18, went up to Bethel and asked God, who, God, not Yahweh, who should lead the charge against the Benjamites? Yahweh said Judah should lead. So they actually asked God who should go. And God responds and says Judah should go. So you're like, oh, okay, then God's with them, right? Israelites got up the next morning, moved against Gibeah, and the men of Israel marched out to fight the Benjamin, and they arranged their battle lines against Gibeah, and the Benjamites attacked from Gibeah and struck down 22,000 Israelites that day. They got defeated by Benjamin. Wait a minute, I thought God said Judah should lead them. Why are they losing? The Israelite army took heart and once more arranged their battle lines in the same place where they had taken the positions the day before. The Israelites went up and wept before Yahweh until evening. They asked Yahweh, should we go again and march out to fight the Benjamites, our brothers? And Yahweh said, attack them. So the Israelites marched towards Benjamin the next day, and the Benjamites attacked them and from Gibeah and struck down the 18,000 sword-wielding soldiers. So they got defeated again. Why in the world are they going to God and God's answering them twice and they're constantly getting defeated? I thought every time God answered you, you had victory. This seems really jacked up of God to answer their prayers twice. Go, Judah. You should lead. Attack them. And yet they're losing. What's going on? They didn't ask him first. They didn't ask God, what should we do? They never once asked what should we do? Because God would respond, I don't have witnesses, evidence, trial, you know, all that stuff I said in the Levitical law. They never asked what should they do. What did they ask? The first question they asked is, who should lead us? What does God tell them? What he's already told them before. This takes you right back to the first chapter of Judges where they say, who should lead us in the war? And God says, Judah. And Numbers, God says Judah should lead you. All the time, God says Judah. He just gave him an answer. This kind of reminds you of Manoah's angel. Where they, they say, what should we do? And the angel just repeats everything the wife said. God didn't say, go and attack. God didn't say, this is how you should handle it. They just said, who should lead? And he said, Judah should. They should always lead. They should lead you in sin too. <laughs> and they get defeated because God's not with them. But then you're like, wait a minute. The next time they actually asked that they should attack. And God says, yes. But now God is allowing them to attack and get defeated to punish them. Because they still haven't figured out how they really seeking God out. This is not God. This is not them seeking God's will. This is them seeking God's approval. They've already decided they're going to attack. They just want God to give them his rubber stamp. And say, go ahead. This is like your, your kids saying, like, which one of us should smoke marijuana first? <laughs> You're like, wait, 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 wait a minute. The correct question is, is marijuana okay? Should we even do this? And it's almost like God is saying, like, okay, I can't stop you. If you're going to do it, you're going to do it. I mean, we're not talking about, like, a young little kid. We're talking about fully grown adults that have been a nation of God for over 300 years. And so he's kind of like, if you're going to do this, then... I can't stop you. I gave you free choice. 
He says, I'll answer your questions, yeah. But that doesn't mean I'm proving this because you never asked if it was okay. And that's so important because sometimes I think we've known that we've been guilty of prayers. You've already decided that you're going to move to a different house. And then you start asking God, like, help me find a good house. But you never even ask whether I should even move to begin with. You decide that you're going to quit your job and look for another job, but you never ask God. And you're like, okay, God, help me find another job. But you never ask God if he was done with you in that particular job, right? This is the kind of stuff we do. We, we make a decision, and then we ask God to guide us in the decision that we already made. And that's exactly what they're doing. They never once ask if this is okay. They go out and they're defeated again. Verse 26, So all the Israelites and the whole army went up to Bethel, and they wept and they sat there before Yahweh, and they did not eat anything that day until evening. They offered up burnt sacrifices and tokens of peace to Yahweh. And the Israelites asked Yahweh, for the ark of God's covenant was there in those days. Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, was serving at Yahweh in those days. So there you go. So now what's different? They're asking. Yes, now they're fasting, repenting of their sins, and now they're asking what they should even do. And now they finally brought the Ark of the Covenant to actually consult God. Now, the mention of Phineas is ironic, because Phineas, remember, at the end of Joshua, when they discovered that the Reubenites and the Gadites and half of Manasseh on the eastern side of the Jordan River had built another altar, and they said, hey, we should go over there and attack them and kill them. And Phineas said, no, let's investigate first to see if it's true. So he goes over and investigates, finds out it's only a memorial, not an actual sacrificial place. Now, they're like, hey, the Gibeonites have done this. We should go attack them and kill them. And they did. And then it mentions Phineas because it's reminding you, hey, remember Phineas who actually like, tried to do it the right way and investigated before they went into civil war with their own people? Yeah, these people aren't doing that. That's why Phineas' name is brought up. It's to remind you of their, their failure here. So they asked, should we actually do it? And Yahweh said, go attack tomorrow for I will hand them over to you. Now, notice it's much longer. The first time it was also just like, Jewishly, go attack again. But most of the time when God speaks, it's much lengthier than that. This time he says, go attack Gibeah. I will be with you. You will have victory. Because here's the reality. God does want Gibeah to be punished. But he also wanted them to be punished in the right way, according to his Levitical law, and they haven't been doing that. Verse 29. So Israel hid the men in an ambush outside Gibeah, and the Israelites attacked the Benjamites the next day. They took their positions against Gibeah just as they had done before. The Benjamites attacked the army, leaving the city unguarded, and they began to strike down their enemy just as they had done before. On the main roads, one leads to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. In the field they struck down about 30 Israelites. Then the Benjamites said, They are defeated just as before. But the Israelites said, Let's retreat and lure them away from the city into the main roads. All the men of Israel got up from their places and took their positions at Baal Tamar. While the Israelites hiding in ambush jumped out of their places west of Gibeah, 10,000 men, well-trained soldiers from all of Israel, they made a frontal assault against Gibeah, and the battle was fierce. But the Benjamites did not realize that the disaster was at the doorstep, and Yahweh annihilated the Benjamin, Benjamin before Israel, and the Israelites struck down that day 25,100 sword-wielding Benjamites. And the Benjamites saw that they were defeated. 
Now, they actually have victory. Now, notice that this feels like the book of Joshua with Jericho and Ai again. Or Ai. So Ai, they go out without consulting God, and Ai defeats them because of their sin in their camp. And so they finally get right with God, and then they use a fake retreat like before to lure them out, and they're doing the same thing. Notice how this ends. Yahweh annihilated the Benjamites before Israel. Israel struck down that day 25,000 sword William Benjamins, Benjamites, and the Benjamites saw that they were defeated. Three times the narrator lets you know this is over with. God gave them victory, the end. He gives you a final count on the battle, the end. Benjamin realizes that they're defeated, the end. Everything right here tells you that God gave approval to attack the Benjamites. That has happened. They're defeated. They know they're defeated. A final count is there. God has said that he gave them victory. It's all done and over with. They've accomplished God's will. It took them a long time to find out what it was, but they finally did it. So he summarizes the battle again and gives you more detail. Verse 38, the Israelites and the men hiding in ambush had arranged a signal and when the men hiding in ambush sent up a smoke signal from the city, the Israelites counterattacked. And Benjamin had begun strike down the Israelites. They struck down about 30 men, and they said, There are no doubt about it. They are totally defeated as the earlier battle. But when the signal of a pillar of smoke began to rise up from the city, the Benjamites turned around and saw the whole city going up in a cloud of smoke that rose high up in the sky. When the Israelites turned around, the Benjamites panicked because they could see the disaster was at their doorposts. They retreated before the Israelites, taking the road to the wilderness, but the battle overtook them as men from the surrounding city struck them down. The surround, they surrounded the Benjamites, chased them from Noah, annihilated them all the way to the spot east of Geba. 18,000 Benjamites, all from the capable warriors, fell dead. The rest turned and ran toward the wilderness, heading towards the cliff of Ramon. So once again, it kind of repeats the battle again, but this time it emphasizes the city being destroyed. And it emphasizes them running away. So everything is final. The reason the narrators repeat this twice is to let you know that it is definitely over with. But the Israelites caught the 5,000 of the main roads, of, of them on the main roads, and they stayed right on their heels all the way to Gideon and struck down 2,000 more. That day, 25,000 sword-wielding Benjamites fell in battle, and all of them capable warriors. 600 survivors turned and ran away to the wilderness of the cliff of Ramon, and they stayed there for four months. The Israelites returned to the Benjamite towns and put the sword to them. They wiped out all the cities, the animals, and everything they could find. They set fire to every city in their path. So now the narrator goes and describes how they then go to every single Benjamite city and start wiping them out completely. Animals, children, women, everyone. Did God give them permission for that? No. Is that necessary? No. They are doing to their own people what they were supposed to have done to the Canaanites and didn't. Notice that repeating theme? Gideon, Jephthah, the Danites... They're treating their own people in this horrible way. And they wipe them all out so that only 600 Benjamites are left. The same number of Danites who went out and slaughtered everybody. Can you imagine killing every single person to the fact that there's only 600 people left? They got way too carried away. Because in those days, Israel had no king. 
and everyone was doing right in their own eyes. And even when they finally figured out that they should repent and make sacrifices and ask God, they still got carried away and did it for their own glory. And now it becomes about vengeance and punishing people for their own purposes rather than just getting justice. 